Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Impossible is one of the most powerful words in the English language. Think about how many things we use in our everyday lives that once were considered impossible. Can you imagine what the Flat Earth Society of the Middle Ages would have thought about the smartphone? One of the biggest lessons of history is that many boundaries are arbitrarily drawn and ultimately proven to be illusory. Consider this. In 1947, many scientists believed that the sound barrier was a brick wall in the sky. It took Chuck Yeager and the X-1 to prove otherwise, ushering in the age of supersonic flight. Yes, impossible is a powerful word, but it is just a word. And frankly, it's a word that Dick Rutan doesn't really like. Rutan was drawn to flight as a Southern California youngster in the 1940s. He became a decorated fighter pilot during the Vietnam War, one of the legendary Misties. Two decades later, Dick and his little brother Bert began developing a special aircraft, setting their sights on a landmark achievement in aviation. Many people insisted this mission was impossible. Bad weather, mechanical problems, fatigue. Many obstacles could have prevented him from accomplishing this feat. Some people bombarded him with the simplest question, why? As you will learn from my two-part interview, Rutan flew off into the distant skies for the best reason of all, to prove that it could be done. How did you first become interested in flying? Well, hi, Keith. Well, <laughs> glad to meet you here in Bermuda Dunes. It's a beautiful spring day in the desert. Oh, no, interested in flying. Uh, well, my mother took me for an airplane ride. The first air, not She didn't take me, but... Uh, she was very, we were really poor, and my dad had just got out of, out of the Navy, and he was a farmer before that, and they didn't have, we didn't have any money, but for some reason she scraped up a few dollars and took me out to Flea Bob Airport here in Riverside, California. It was just a grass field and a hand-propped up uh, Piper Cub, and the three of us bounced out across this field and lifted him in the air, and that little kid looked down with that handful of minutes circling over Riverside, California, and what he saw would change his life forever. Now, this was what year? Uh, well, I'm trying to figure out when that was, but it, it, here's a little kid that's between eight and 10 years old in that area, and it was just after World War II. And uh, my dad was going uh, with the GI Bill, he went to dental school, which changed our, so, our social economic status dramatically, you know, when, when we grew up. But that, I'll never forget, and every moment of that thing, I remember that the, 
that the J3 Cub, it's a J5 Cub, uh, the tires didn't have any tread on them. Is that a little bit unnerving? <laughs> well, you know, who am I to know? And it was all new to me. And, and so there were two of us. The back seat is a little wider and the pilot's up front. And, and so they wanted me to sit down on the seat and put the seatbelt on, but I couldn't see out. And so I wasn't going to do that. They didn't know anything about seatbelts. But I wanted to see out, see what was going on, what the pilot was doing. And to this day, I stood up and I grabbed a hold of the top of his seat. And I can still remember the leather and the smell because it was kind of torn and worn. In insulation, would had kind of a musty smell. I can still remember that. <laughs> and yet you were captivated by this musty smell and the sights yeah. and sounds. But, and... You know, here we go. This is a grand adventure for some little kid. Had no idea. But to be able to, 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 uh, to look out and look down and fly... Wow. I mean, it was something. And after that, after that, it was, it was nothing but aviation. You didn't consider doing anything else? No, that was aviation. And I was interested in aviation. I'd become fascinated with it and, and totally immersed in it at the, expense, at the expense of a more rounded character development. Knew a lot about airplanes. Didn't know jack squat about anything else because that was the focus. If it wasn't aviation, I wasn't interested in it. So you were kind of obsessed? Uh, well, I guess you would say that mildly, the obsession with aviation. And, uh, and so my mother says that we weren't, when Bert and I were, bo were born, we weren't issued birth certificates, we were issued uh, flight plans. And we both had aviation fuel for blood. And so... Of course, the two brothers were very different. One was this, you know, wild-ass, go-to-hell fighter pilot. And my brother was this pimply-faced kid that had a pocket protector, and he was this, went to college. And, of course, and uh, he became a designer and so forth. And people are going to learn here, of course, that your little brother followed in your footsteps to a certain degree. And Well, uh, the, the thing about... Bert and I are five years apart, and so when we're five years apart, that means that we were never in the same school together. Uh, and I couldn't wait to get in the Air Force and make contrails high in the sky. And another thing that I remember is that our life started right at the end, little kids, right at the end of World War II. And when it finally became aware of the people that fought in World War II and what they did and how many of them died, and I found out that the Mighty Eighth out of East Anglia in England during those days, that there were three out of four. Think about it. Three out of four were casualties. I mean, they come back and a whole squadron was shot down. Only one guy, one airplane would come back, all shot up. And I, and I read about this and I think, how in the hell do those guys get in another airplane the next day and do it again with that kind of odds? And I still can't grasp that, that people can actually do that. And so being aware of that, you would think, but then you, it finally comes around to the question, what if I could do that? Would I be up to that? And I thought about what those people did, and I thought I could never do that. Uh, so was it the fascination of aviation or this needing to prove something, which was more powerful, or did they kind of work well, together? Well, first of all, I was really interested in it. And then everybody, when you grow up and look around at the world, and that was kind of my parents' philosophy. Uh, the freedom that they gave us was almost unlimited, no matter what we did or how dangerous it was. Never said anything about that. And their attitude was, well, Bert and Dick, we gave you life. They turned around and pointed us at the world, and there it is. And what you make of it is totally up to you. Have a nice life. When were you first behind the stick? Well, we had this fascination, and both Bert and I, uh, he would build, he would design airplanes and make them do different things. All I wanted to do was fly them. You know, I'd get it all together and, and uh, you control and free flight and dog fighting, and I'd crash most of them because, you know, trying to develop my skills. And then waiting for the day that I could fly. And so at 15, when I was 15 years old, in a little, a perfect town to grow up, perfect. It was uh, Fresno, it was south, 35 miles southeast 
uh, from Fresno, and it's a farming community, small little town, and there was a lot of agriculture. And, and this was back when California yeah. was paradise, <laughs> right? Yeah, don't get me started on what happened to our government now. It, it's appalling. But anyway, back in those days, it could not have been a better place to, to grow up. A lot of freedom. Uh, if you wanted to work, plenty of places to work, picking picking cotton and picking figs. I remember how terrible that was. And a lot of activities and, you know, almost total freedom. And I started taking pilot, pilot uh, lessons when I was 15 and a half. And in six months and in six hours, I sold it on my, on my birthday, 16th birthday, in a little, I don't know, Cessna 120, little tail dragger. And then... Uh, then it was fascinating. You know, I got my private license on the very day and the commercial license and went into the Air Force. Now, how did it feel going up that first day by yourself, completely in control? Well, <laughs> I think there's a couple of things in life, especially pilots, that they remember when they taxied out and looked over at that seat that used to be occupied by somebody who actually knew how to fly, your flight instructor. And generally, he was going to turn you loose before you thought you were ready. <laughs> but the ego is that, you know, I'm not going to say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not ready. You would never say that, but you have second. And uh, the flight instructor would know whether you're ready or not, whether you had confidence in yourself or not. But you, uh, it, it, it was really close to that first day. We took off in that little cub, looking out the window there in, uh, in Flea Bob when I was eight years old compared to looking around and, I, and it finally hits you. I'm in an airplane. I'm flying this thing all on my own. Uh, you know, there's a certain feeling that it permeates your soul uh, about that. And then, <laughs> then you say, ooh, I gotta land this thing now. <laughs> Boy, I better not mess this up. And of course you don't. And uh, Well, it always, it, it occurs to me that um, there's a great metaphor about life in this country and freedom in being in control of an airplane. You're the captain of the ship. Uh, it's all on you. Uh, anything is possible. Uh, there's responsibility, there's obligation, but there's also freedom. I, I think that's probably the freest thing you can have, especially in the 21st century, is a sense of freedom, that you're up there. And uh, you have control of that airplane. You can make it do anything or go anything you want to. And other than shooting you out of the sky, you can go do any damn thing you want to. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's almost unbelievable freedom. Like when you're down here on, on planet Earth, on the ground, uh, you know, you look around and what's your freedom? I mean, you, you can drive on a road and if you only get off the road, it's usually a fence and it's private property and you can't go there. Uh, and after a while, it felt like it was in a, a bar. That's why I like the high desert up there. Uh, I had a house up in Mojave for many years, just sold it. But I could go a half a block on the McAdam Road, and then it's raw desert. And I could go in any cardinal heading and go as far as I wanted to. And boy, I miss that. That freedom is really important. And then the high Sierras, I love that. You get up there, and I like uh, cross-country high Sierra backpack. Get in a lot of trouble, get in a lot of canyons you can't get out. But it's a sense of adventure. Uh, adventure is the essence of life to me. There's a thing called, and I think it's, it's normal with Homo sapiens, with our species. They want to know what's on the other side of that ridge. I call it ridge phobia. You're driving in a valley and you look up there and there's a ridge line. And you think, what's on the other side of that? I got to climb up there and see. And I think, uh, that attitude of what our species is, is because we came across Siberia and they could walk to Alaska in those days and, and find out what's on the other side of the ridge. And here we are today. What, what does it mean to you to be firmly um, in that tradition, in that lineage of explorers who are trying to push the envelope? Um, how does that affect your sense of self? Well, uh, that's, that's really a good question. Uh, it's it, it, it's a sense of adventure. As an example, when I go in the, in the high Sierras, there's two things. Uh, 
you know, adventure is the essence of life. And uh, you're driving down the highway in Yosemite and there's a road that says, view Yosemite Falls, whatever. And then you get in the parking place and, and then there's a nice road and, and nice walkway and you walk up there and um, you see this, this beautiful falls. But, but because there's a fence and a parking lot, there's absolutely no adventure. No adventure. As an example, when I go on in the Sierras hiking, I'll go on a trail, but there's no fine way that I'm going to come back on the trail. Never been on this trail before, don't know where it leads. I want to see something new. What's over that ridge? What's out in that canyon? And my wife, she gets upset. She says, I don't want to go on a, she calls it a dick hike. Because I'll go on the trail, but I ain't coming back on the trail. I'm going to come back some other way. And that just drives her nuts. But to me, that's the essence of who we are. Now, where does that come from in you? That's a good question. And, and I don't know. Maybe everybody's different. People have different talents and stuff. Uh, as an example, my brother and I, how different we are. Uh, he went up to Coeur d'Alene, got a beautiful house, sold his company for, uh, you know, to make him financially uh, very nice. I mean, he worked really hard, sold his company, bought a nice house up there. And Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, what a beautiful place. And I'm into snowmobiles and dirt bike riding and, uh, and, and stuff like that. But, but I says, okay, let's go up to where they offload the snowmobiles and stuff. And so I had to drive up there and we're looking around at, at the snow and the green trees and the blue azure sky. And there's not a sign of a human being around. And I look at that and I think, man, that's just, you know, it just permeates what you were. And he would look at me and he would say, why would you want to do that? He said, I would rather sit in my office in front of my computer and work out some design problem. And I thought, how could you not, you know, how could you not want to just climb in a snowmobile and head out across country someplace? And that's the difference. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot, and the birth of an American icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. We're, we're talking about motivation and, and why people do different things. And uh, what is the essence of life? And it's adventure is the essence of life. Uh, and the other part of that is the, the essence of life is to, is to take on a lofty goal of some time, a, a lofty challenge. And I realize uh, a thing that's almost unachievable in most sides. And uh, the two things my brother did was the spaceship and also the flight around the world. But his, but his this is really neat, but his attitude is, if I can't, whatever I'm gonna do next, my challenge next. And if I can't find at least half of the people, knowledgeable people, that say, Bert, there is no fine way that that can work. And if that's the case with half the people, then it's worthy of my challenge. Now, that's a, that's a really interesting point, is at the heart of what we do here. Um, the impossible, because after all, and we're going to get into this, the Voyager thing, 
first of all, you, you have people who'd say, okay, well, why would you want to do that? And secondly, you say, that has to be impossible. Well, that, that was my idea when Bert first mentioned that back in 1980. And see, that's, that's the whole mantra about this thing, about achieving a goal. And, and then uh, and, and I experienced this and learned about it, and then I wrote a lot about that in my book, about this was hard. It was really hard. We had incredible challenges with this thing. But it's all you had to do is manage the motivation. My mother would say, if you manage the motivation, if you can dream it, you can do it. And as long as you never quit. See, those words, they echoed in my mind for a long, long time. And during the Voyager thing, there were some impossible things. Now, tell me about your mother. Uh, well, it, I call it momisms. And she was always there. And, uh, you know, one day, about, about self-esteem and what you think you can actually accomplish. And when I was a little kid, too, she took me to... Uh, a military base for a fly-in. They had military fly-in. And I go there and the jets were just new at that time. And I walked up to this, uh, it was an RF-84F and it had cameras in the nose. And you look in the windows for the camera bay and you didn't see cameras, you saw a scantily clad female in there. And then this guy, the pilot, he was standing there in his G-suit looking like somebody from outer space. And I was standing there looking at him and I thought, man, would I like to do that? Boy, I would love to do that. And that was a defining moment that my mother saw that. And she walked up to me and she says, Dick, would you like to fly one of those? And I thought, oh, God, would I? But then I said something else. I says, but I, Dick Rutan, could never achieve that. You said that. I said that. I mean, I'm look at this little kid looking at this jet and this thing, and I'd just love to do that. But I didn't think that I was capable. And what did she say? And she literally grabbed me by the neck and she got really angry. She grabbed me by the collar and pulled me up and he says, look, he says, there's nothing on this earth that you can't do. I don't want to ever hear you say that again. Oh my God. And I'll never forget that. What a gift. What an incredible gift. If you can dream it, you can do it. And the only way to fail is if you quit. And then it's all you have to do to achieve it is manage the motivation. And along with this same thing is about the goal, uh, you know, to seek a lofty goal, like Bert says, half the people say there's no fine way you can do that. But then the end of that is, and then in, in the motivation part of it is, try to imagine what it would feel like to accomplish that. Those five years with no money and building this airplane by ourselves with all kinds of problems from people, to whatever. And, and sometimes I thought this is impossible. It can't be done. And I'd walk out on the ramp there at Mojave, and I'd sit down with my back up against the door of Hangar 77, and I'd look out over the high desert. And I would close my eyes, and I would try to imagine what would it feel like to land at Edwards Air Force Base, having accomplished aviation's last first. And just let that permeate into your psyche. And then try to, try to imagine the feeling that you would have to do that. And then based on that feeling, it would give you the motivation to stand up and plow at it again and never quit. Another thing I would do too, with impossible things, uh, challenges, the least of which was fighting with my brother over some aspects of the project, is I get my little airplane and I climb up and I call it cobwebs flight. I go and do a cobweb flight. And this flight would wipe the cobwebs out of my head. And I'd look down from the sky, I look down at that problem. You know something? When I look at it from that perspective, it wasn't all that big at all. So I'd land and just hammer with it. And she said, said some, another momism that really, that helped me through my whole life. And that was, uh, do not worry about anything you can do nothing about. If you can't do anything about it, stop worrying about it. What's the point? If you can't do anything about it, why obsess on it? And then when you do run into a problem, whatever it is, just frickin' deal with it and go on. And, and as you know, so many people get caught up on that idea. Yeah, just frickin' deal with it and yeah. go on. But don't obsess about things. You know, we took off that morning and the wingtips were coming off and we were talking about uh, tearing up the end of the wings and the fuel and all the bad things could happen. And I looked out there that morning after takeoff and I says, you know, there's not a damn thing I can do about that right now. 
So I just quit worrying about it. I let them worry about it. I ain't going to worry about it. So when you became a fighter pilot, what was it about that that uh, in Vietnam that uh, that got you? Go well, uh, the first thing was that I did not qualify. I did not qualify for pilot training. And looking back, you know, some people looked at my life and what happened and stuff about how you read and, your, and, and the dyslexia that I had that nobody knew about. I just knew that was all hard for me. Uh, but to overcome that type of, that type of mental problem, whatever, uh, was even, they held me back in third grade, I think, to do it over again, problems. It now, was, does that affect your self-esteem? Yes. It, in fact, it, helped, it, it, it affected my self-esteem a lot, it, my character. Uh, How did you deal with it? And, and self-esteem is a big thing. Uh, without self-esteem, uh, then you're just a coward standing in a corner because you don't think you can do anything. And I, and this is right out of high school, and I went down and signed up to go to pilot training. And I was already a commercial pilot at that time. You know, at 18 years old, I was a commercial pilot and a uh, flight instructor. But then they didn't accept me for pilot training. And I'm sure it was because of the academic scores. Did not real good at taking tests and stuff. However, that turned out to be a godsend because they sent me through nav school. And had they not done that, I would not have had the experience of flying all those oceans and navigating and all the weather systems and political problems you have flying. I've had no, if I had no knowledge of that, we had no chance of flying around the world in the Voyager. Well, so I knew what was required. And so it turned out to be a godsend. And then after I was in the Air Force for a while, uh, I guess the Air Force decided I wasn't that stupid after all, and they gave me a class assignment. But there was two things that I wanted to do, and I wanted to go to pilot training. I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a warrior, and I wanted to fly combat and as a fighter. And and I and this thing in, in your background, I kept thinking about those World War II guys. I kept thinking, I wonder if Little Dicky could do that. Was he really up to it? And then how that evolved into Vietnam and what I did in Vietnam. Uh, then I found out, and I learned a couple of things about about a warrior. And now I have a total understanding of why those guys uh, could fly those bombers in World War II and three-fourths of them get shot down. And I understood that, totally understood why that happened and how that works. Uh, about, about combat. Uh, how do you explain that? Well, how do you explain well, that? I, I wanted to know if I could do that. And the only way to find out if you can actually do the same thing that those guys did uh, is to go and do it. There's no other way to find out whether you're that brave if you want to put... I mean, you literally that, wanted to prove something to yourself. No, I had to prove something. Uh, and, and I knew that when I, well, I went through nav school and then... Pilot training was easy. I graduated number one in my class out of 360 students. And before I went into pilot training, I wanted to fly an F-100. They said, no, no, new pilots never fly. It's a hard airplane to fly. None of them ever get it. And I said, nope. They said, all they have to have is one class assignment F-100, and I'm going to get it because I'm going to graduate number one. And there was the motivation. See, I had to get, in Vietnam, there was people getting shot at. And I wanted to go and do that in the worst way because I had to find out whether I could do that or not. And just the other day, there was a 93-year-old guy that was at a program up in Mojave, an old guy, an older guy, but he was still up and, and he was still walking, but not real fast. And I found out that he was part of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, you know, the Band of Brothers. And, and this guy that alive, that I could talk to him, jumped out of that C-47, that night sky, in D-Day that night. And I thought, wow, you talk about being brave. And here he is. I can talk to him. And just the honor of being with an actual warrior who did that. And, and his son that was with him says, um, whatever his name was, says, hey, can we get something to drink, some coffee? Get a cup of coffee, you know. And 
usually when somebody asks you for coffee, they would, you know, say, what do you want in it? And he says, Dave, he says, what do you want in it? You know what he said? Whiskey. I thought, God, give the man some whiskey. He's <laughs> Look at this guy. The combat, and he made two combat jumps, that one in, in, in an Arnhem. Arnhem, Arnhem. And, and here he is, 93 years old, and he wants whiskey in his coffee. I says, damn. And then I look around at our flag, and I'm so damn proud of that flag. And, and honor it like anything, because that guy, he jumped out that night in World War II for the flag. What do you think we owe those people who have come before, who have fought for that flag? What are we on? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, how do you find, how do you find, how do you define living in a country that's free? The trouble with the people nowadays, they have no idea how free they are. Of course, the government's working really hard to take a lot of that away. But even at that, relatively speaking, what is freedom? The freedom of religion, freedom of speech, Freedom to travel. I mean, those are incredible things, and they're not universal in this land. And there are people trying to take them away. Anyway, I graduated number one in the class, and when they pulled the curtain away, and everybody thought I was kidding. You know, they, they teased me all the time. Every time, I'm not going to have any F-100s. And I said, yeah, yeah, they are. They pulled the curtain away, and since I was number one in the class, I got to stand up and take my pick of all the assignments. And I looked up there, and there were two F-100s. And everybody around there was aghast. You know, they said, what? Ah, like Rutan knew what he was talking about. Hell no, I was just bullshitting them. You know, I was more surprised than they were. And I stood up and picked that and went to Luke, went to gunnery school, and I went to combat. And now I was gonna find out if Dickie Rutan could actually be a combat warrior. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What did you find out about yourself? Uh, and there's a couple of flights that I'll never forget. And this was in late night. It was in August, July, August of 1967, when the Vietnam War was really coming up to its peak. I was flying a single seat single-engine, supersonic jet fighter. I was on a combat mission. Most of the combat missions that we flew in South Vietnam, there were no ground fire. You know, maybe small arms, but when you're going 500 knots, small arms is not a consideration. And I'd done, I'd done a few missions. Okay, we're dropping bombs in the smoke in, in, in the jungle, drop the bombs and leave. And I said, wait a minute, there's something missing here. So one day there was a hill and it was full of bunkers and they wanted to put napalm all through the bunker area. And so it was kind of a low level run in. And I'm running, lining up for my bomb run to put napalm in these tunnels. And I looked over at my one o'clock and there was, I could see somebody threw some brush away and they pulled out a 50, a 50 caliber machine gun that has tracers. And it, for a minute, it kind of caught my eye really quick because the tracers were coming right over my canopy. A nice stream of, can of tracers right over my canopy. And at, that, and at that instant will define you as a warrior. And I, and I remember that and I look back and years later on, I, all my other combat warriors, I, says, I said, Chuck, take me back to the time when you realized there was somebody shooting at you personally, trying to kill you. What was your first thought? What did you do? There's a lot of things you can do. You can turn away. Uh, you can start calling for your mother. Uh, first reaction is, is to duck down behind that bulletproof canopy that you can see through and be protected by an 032 aluminum skin. <laughs> it's ridiculous, you know, like the guy, the ostrich with his head in the sand. But here's what, here's what I found universal, and it, was, and it was exactly what I did. I looked over at that, and the very first thing out of my mind was the audacity of that son of a bitch to shoot at me. 
It was on a personal thing. Meriwether Lewis, when he came back from the Lewis and Clark expedition, one of the first things he told President Jefferson, this is 19, 1804, 1803 or four from this, you know, the Lewis and Clark when they discovered whatever, incredible story, adventure. I'd give it anything if I could have gone on that. Sacagawea. Ah, oh, little pomp. Toussaint Charbonneau. I studied that. I read all the journals. I went and walked all the trails. Yeah. Anyway, when he came back and he told President Jefferson, he says, the greatest exhilaration a man can experience is being shot at and missed. And I looked over there, and, that's, and, that, and the very first thing that came to my mind was not any kind of fear or anything. It was the audacity of somebody to shoot at me. And then the next thing you do will probably get you killed. And it goddamn near got me killed. And I kicked the bomb side out of napalm and I kicked the rudder real hard and I and I put the gun right on that right on that gun sight. And my flight lead saw me roll in to the gun and saw him shooting. And he says, he says, Rutan, what are you doing? He says, I'm going after that gun. He says, negative, get the hell out of there. I says, and I argued with him. I says, but sir, he shot at me. You know, like I was obligated to go and kill him. I'm a warrior. Or there's so, something primal about that. That's what we do. But you're right. It's so primal, it isn't even funny. And I found out, and at that, at that moment, I found out, I realized how those guys could do that. It's the exhilaration of being shot at. And after my combat experience, and that in the Cold War, I started to look at the psychology of some of that. And I come up with this conclusion. Uh, and there's another gland that's in your body. And, it, I, and I, I named it, it's called the combat gland. I think it's kind of over here underneath your ear on your neck or something like that. I'm not sure its location. And it, and it only activates when you're being shot at. When, we're, when you're really in combat and the shells are coming both ways and you're putting napalm on gun sights. And, and you know you're really alive at that moment, right? Oh my God, I mean, but this, what this gland pumps into your system is the most incredible endorphin that you can imagine. I mean, there's not a drug in the world that can, that can replace what that gland pumps into your system. And another thing, and the, but the big problem with that is it's extremely addictive. Extremely addictive. And you want more. And you want more. And, uh, well, anyway, he called me off and I argued with him about going after the gun, and he probably saved my life that day. That brand new warrior didn't know any better. But then after a while, of dropping bombs in, jungle, in the jungle, making toothpicks and making monkeys deaf, I said, that's not what I came here for. Then I found out there's another top secret operation with a, with a jet fighter over North Vietnam for Ford Air Control duty. The Misties. In, the Misties, it was just getting started. In fact, the commander that started it, Major Bud Day, he got shot down right away. He became a prisoner of war and the Medal of Honor from his conduct. Think about that, to be awarded the, the highest honor as your, conduct, as your conduct in a prisoner of war. Wow, you talk about courage. Where do we get people like that? Were you ever afraid of being shot down and taken? Prisoner. Okay, here's another, here's another problem, another philosophy, Dick Rutan's philosophy of combat. First of all, this is combat gland and then it's addictiveness because I want more and more and more. The name of this is Misty Outfit and it was really high risk stuff, really high risk. In fact, I think we had the highest loss rate per sortie. We are at very low level, yep. we're at low altitude and we're looking for targets. We're forward air control duty in North Vietnam. Now, when I'm when I'm in combat, and when I'm in South Vietnam, we get scrambled at night. And if flight of four and we're night and we fly at 15,000 feet or 20,000 feet, and some radar guy gives us directions, you know, turn left, turn right, ready, stand by, ready, ready, pickle. And everybody pickles their bombs and they fall into the night and blow up sometime below you. And you don't know what the target was. Even the guy directing you didn't know what the target was, much less if you hit anything. You talk about frustration, uh, you know, uh, like, you know, like the Ford Air Control, little Cessnas in the south. We check in, and he had troops in con in contact, and they were being overrun, and we we're trying to put our, our trying to put our ordnance in, to, uh, whatever, 
for the special forces camp. And then, but all of a sudden we check out and leave. And I think, hey, there's action going on back there. And, you know, I'm not part of that. But this forward air control thing, the neat part of it was, is we got to fly six hours a day. We'd, sell, we'd show up at dawn and we'd stay there until noon. And most of the fighter bombers that went into North Vietnam, they'd go in at high altitude, they'd roll over at steep dive angles, drop their bombs, pull off, and leave. Because the sky is full of all kinds of anti-aircraft and SAM missiles and occasional MiGs running around and get the hell out of there. The misty fact, we went up there for six hours at low altitude. Now that's got to be incredibly fatiguing. I mean, that's a long time to be up, right? It, well, here again, it's here we are, young, eager fighter pilots. And I found out, now this is what I came here for. Because I was looking, I was looking for ammo dumps, transshipment points, um, you know, close the Ho Chi Minh Trail, find all that war supply going to the south to kill our guys. And trucks, love to hit trucks, love to find out, find them when they're parked being able to see gun sites when they're supposed to be camouflaged. Called it the Camouflage College. It was really something. And we'd drill around for an hour or an hour and 20 minutes and then at low altitude, going as fast as you can, then we'd go out and refuel. Had our own tanker, which is really cool. We'd go out and take a drink of gas and come back in for another hour and 20 minutes. So what we were doing, we were down there finding it. And there was one other aspect of it. And it was, uh, I had the ability to whoever tried to kill me, I had the ability to kill them. Now, I always thought about those bomber guys. They just stand up there and they got to take it. You know, they can't retaliate or anything. I thought, God, how in the hell do they do that? But a Misty roaming around out there, and if there's a gun sight that's very accurate and very aggressive, and he's camouflaged well and he happened to miss it, and shoot at you so close you could even hear the shockwaves of the shells going by. That guy had to die. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you just you start orbiting him just out of his gun range. And then you round up, you divert some uh, fighter bombers going down to Hanoi, and you round a couple of those up, 105s with big fuse extenders, and then be able to mark them. And they're shooting like mad and the 105s roll in and drop their stick of bombs, and it just obliterates the gun sight. Think of the feeling of that. Now, how did it's you... It's you screw with me, you son of a gun. <laughs> when you got, when the war ended and you came home, uh, how did you replace that adrenaline need? That was hard. Uh, I had flown, uh, it went to Misty, and we were only supposed to be there four months, 120 days, because of the loss rate. You know, they couldn't ask anybody, you know, think about 28% loss rate and for a whole year, the, the odds, it's almost as bad as World War II. Uh, but you're, you know, you, you take off in the early morning on a misty mission, three o'clock in the morning, you get a three hour intelligence brief about what's going on in your area and where the transshipment points, what are the other strikes are going in. You're gonna go in and uh, do bomb damage assessment or some of the little rivers that were mined, they were really a lot of fun. We'd go down right on the water early in the morning and fly. And the magnetic pulse of your airplane going by would set off some of those mines that were getting more and more sensitive. But anyway, I digress. You get up and uh, you're a lone guy. Two guys, two guys get in a single F-100. They walk out, they start engines in the dark and just, just barely twilight every morning at Phuket you could hear that afterburner light and everybody knew you'd wake up just a little bit and you know there's misty one one i wonder if he's coming back and he lights off all by himself climbs into the murky night and goes up and finds his tanker off the coast of north vietnam and take a full load of fuel and you're busy you know you're taking up you're climbing you're doing all pilot things and you go and find your tanker and you refuel and top off and this is a really an eerie feeling because I'd pull it back off of the tanker, waggle my wings and wave at them and try to tell them, you know, we'll be back in an hour and a half. I hope, hope you're here. <laughs> and then you make a 980 return and you head directly for North Vietnam and you try to penetrate at a different place every morning for random. 
And there's a checklist you go through. Visor down, make sure the seat pins are out. Uh, the chin straps up, you're, you're in really tight. And uh, turn off all your transponders and emitters and lights and go through that whole thing and, and prepare the airplane for combat. Make sure the guns are armed, your marking rockets are armed. And when all of that is done, and you're descending out at 24,000 feet to hit the coast going 550 knots if you can, at low altitude, and you sit there, and it's kind of, there's not, not anything going on. The air is usually perfectly calm, and pretty soon you can see the coast of North Vietnam appear in the windscreen, and it's, uh, you know, the visibility is always kind of scuzzy, and it's kind of dank feeling. Visibility isn't all that good, but not not bad. But you look up there and I could see those rice paddies and stuff, and it was the most peaceful, serene scene that I can even imagine. And you had this kind of apprehension, like, I wonder what the next five hours of my life is going to be like. Uh, another thing about that, I lost my train of thought, but on that is it, how do you become a warrior? And if you want to be an effective warrior, you have to accept the fact that you're not going to survive. You will not survive this thing. And based on that, you can go and do your damn job. But if you sit there and worry about, oh, God, you know, I'm worried about getting at home and start worrying about outside things, you're not worth a shit as a combat guy. You might as well go home because you're actually putting yourself in more danger than ever. And so all of a sudden, with these high-risk missions, I accept the fact that I ain't making it. I'm probably getting the best I'm going to end up as a prisoner of war. Went down in intelligence, learned all about the interrogators and what was going to happen to you. And my premonition was that I would become a prisoner of war. Did you have nightmares about yeah. that? Yeah, I thought about that a lot. And I prepared myself. Food aversion. I'd go out and eat garbage behind the chuck, you know, the chow hall just to make sure that I didn't, that I could eat anything that was put in front of me. Really? Now tell me about I, that. I learned about the interrogation. Uh, the new guy village and what they were going to do to you right off and they finally caught you. And if the civilians got a hold of you, they'd kill you right on the spot. In fact, I saw an F-105 pilot that the farmers got him when he ejected and they were chopping him apart as I came by. And the only guys that made it to prisoner war camp were the guys that the militia fended off the civilians that were going to kill you. Those are the only guys that made it. But even at that. Uh, but then... And then you see, thinking about the apprehension of that, and then that, and then, and then all of a sudden, well, that, that handful of minutes that's nice and smooth, and then you start to think about philosophy of other things. And, but then the very instant, uh, there's a gunner on the coast, and he'll, the first guy sees you, and he'll put up barrage fire. They'll just fill the sky full of tracers. And then another gun opens up. Then another gun. And all of a sudden, there's just tracers all over the sky. When the first tracers come, all of that ended. All that ended. Now you're there and you're doing your job. And God damn, I tell you, I loved it. I just freaking loved it. I'll bet you'd go back tomorrow if you could. I, I, in, a, in a minute. But O'Duck couldn't handle the five or six Gs anymore. <laughs> but I'll never, ever forget that experience. And now I knew right then about those guys in World War II or any war. The, the, the courage, the unbelievable courage. And here's to put it all together. Uh, a prisoner, a, a prisoner of war, POW was finally released in 1973. Uh, I don't remember, it was uh, Jeremiah Denton, I think. Anyway, he got off the airplane and he looked around and he just endured years and years, six years of an unbelievable torture and deprivation and stuff they had to go through. He got off the airplane and he said something so profound that I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat it to you but I'm going to cry when I say it because I have yet to say this. I remember this well. Of my voice. And he got off the airplane at Clark Field and looked at freedom for the first time. And he says, I consider it an honor. I'm sorry. I consider it a privilege, a privilege to have had the honor to serve my country under difficult circumstances. That... That's the most profound thing I've ever seen of a warrior. And then I thought about our flag. Here's a man that went through that, and he gets off the airplane, and he considered what he's gone through as a privilege to have done that for our flag. 
Think about that. Those people that went and did that. And then I look around today about people pissing on our flag and saying bad things about America and they want to do something other than the society. Well, you can go on and on. It's just really heartbreaking, it really was. But there was a time in our past that we had people that did that. You know, a, a profound thing. And then I met another one of my friends that was that was actually a prisoner of war forever. And the first time I met him, you know, we could sit in and talk privately. Uh, and it says, Jake, I said, Jake, how in the hell did you survive that? And then I said something else. And I says, and I says, what you went through, I don't think I could have done that. You know, here again, the little boy by the jet and the mother. You know what he said? He says, Dick, yes, you would have. He says, yes, you could have, and you would have. And then I realized something else. You know, what is a hero? There's, you know, heroes aren't made. But a hero becomes a hero when an average, normal person is faced with an unusual set of circumstances and they do the right thing. I mean, after all... And it's in everybody. It's in your heart. Anybody would do that. When something happens, there's a car fire, somebody's on fire, you would disregard it and they run over there to help them. Because you don't know what's inside you until you're asked to make that decision. But see, that, right? that, that's part of who you are. You would have survived it. You would have done that. Uh, you know, don't worry about it. That, you know, I think of those unspeakable tortures and spending all those nights in, you know, in agony, what they did to you. And, and survive. You just want to quit and give up. And and speaking of things that seemed impossible, so where did the idea come for Voyager? Well, this fighter pilot did the Cold War. That's probably the most proud thing I've ever done, is those Cold War warriors. And that's another thing that upsets me right now, is that there were some, we've had some conflicts that if we'd have lost them as a country, we'd have lost our flag. Uh, maybe not even World War One, but certainly World War Two. You know, with the fascist, uh, with Hitler and Nazis and Imperial Japan and stuff. If we'd have lost that, we'd have lost our flag. We'd have lost our country. We lost, uh, or the government gave up on Korea, and we didn't. We didn't prevail in Vietnam because of unbelievably incompetent leadership. Not only the president and his stupid crew, but also the generals, uh, the leadership and the generals that were around during the war, uh, it's pitiful. They should be ashamed of themselves for what they did. Absolutely ashamed of themselves. However, there, but there was another Cold War. It's called the Cold War. And if we'd have lost that, we'd have lost our flag. See, we'd been overrun with communism and and so forth. But I was proud to be a member of the Cold War. I was part of that for about four or five years. And I sat in a bunker with a one megaton thermonuclear bomb strapped in the center of my little F-100. And it was mine. My parachute was in there and my helmet was there. And I had a target. You knew if you dropped that thing, you were not going to need that parachute, right? Well, that's another thing about my parachute. <laughs> I was paranoid about people in my parachute. When I go in, every time I go to a new squadron, they give me a parachute. Okay, your number 10, hang your parachute there. Well, I put it on and adjust the straps. And I'm very careful about how I adjust the straps, especially in the, in the groin area, because I've made 50 some odd sport parachute jumps and I know that how important that is. Anyway, strap it all in and I'd grab the ripcord and I'd pull the ripcord, standing in the personal equipment shop. And of course the sergeant would go ballistic. Oh no, no, sir, don't, oh God, why'd you do that? And the parachute would pop out and it would be all over the floor. I had to repack it. And so I gathered it up in my arms and I said, Sarge, you and I are going to go to the repack shop. We're going to repack it. And I'd stand there and three of us would stand there and, and pack because I know how to pack parachutes. <laughs> and I knew that someday it was going to be my life. And like I said, I made three of them that saved my life. And so we sat there and repacked it. And it was repacked. Was put back on the stand, and I told this guy, I said, you are not to, nobody is supposed to touch that parachute under any circumstances. 
well, sir, we have to make inspections. Here's my phone number, and you call me, and you and I will go down and inspect the parachute. Otherwise, you don't do that. So when I had to squeeze the ejection handles twice, I was very confident that that parachute would open <laughs> and it would save my life. Uh, but we won that. And I lost more friends in the Cold War than I did in any Vietnam War. And the, and the sad thing about it is that almost nobody in this country knows about it. That a lot of guys died. A lot of them died in the Cold War, those 40-year Cold War. And you know something? We beat those bastards. And I like to think that uh, all these F-100s sitting there with that, uh, was it Mark 61? It was a hydrogen bomb we had. One, one airplane and one pilot had a hydrogen bomb destined for another target on the other side of the Iron Curtain now what, someplace. Yeah, now what kind of power and responsibility well, was that? That was immense. When they, when they launched us out of the alert area, and I always look, at, look up at that horn and that light, and I says, you know something? If that thing goes off for real, you know, time will end and, and the, the Earth will change. I mean, it'll be a monumental change in what our species is. And I had a little target. I had a target someplace. Uh, we figured it out, and there's no way we could get back. And so it was a one-way one it was a one-way mission. Uh, right up next to the Iron Curtain in Turkey and Italy. And, but one day we beat them, and we won the Cold War. And there's no monuments, and there's no recognition of any of that. And I, if I do anything, I want to change that because those guys are deserving of what they did. Uh, so where did the idea come from for Voyager? Like I said, my brother, and the things that he's going to try. Uh, he's very clever, and he, and he wants to try different things. Now let's talk about, tell me what the challenge was. Yeah, well, the, the challenge, the Burt's, how he, how he come about trying to do this, is that uh, it, the audacity, it, he's such a far off visionary. Uh, one problem he has is that <laughs> he wants to do things different. His philosophy is that if anybody had done it before, it's all beneath him and they didn't know what they're doing and I will solve it. I will have this new breakthrough in engineering. It was a riddle for him. Yeah, it's real. And, and that's, but I, must, but I reminded him, I says, Bert, remember that only about, uh, well, He'll argue about this percentage, but a third of everything you do is an abject failure. And he'll argue, because you know, he never wants him to know it's failed, but some of those things that he tried were really failures. Failure is important, right? Ah, back to my mom again. Back to my mom again. She says, remember, you will learn more through failure than you do success. That's a profound statement. You'll learn more through failure than you do success. Now, did you understand that as a little boy? No, not, not specifically until we get into these big challenges. You know, another one of my guys, his name is Arthur C. Clarke. Ever heard of him? You've yeah. Heard of this. He's an incredible uh, science fiction writer. Uh, there's another guy that's way out. And he has three laws. I don't know if you know him a lot. He has three laws of life. And one of them is it says to determine one's limitations occasionally you must exceed them. Profound. If you want to know how strong a rope is, for sure, got to break it, right? Right. The other one is, and he says, uh, well, when technology has been sufficiently advanced, it will be indistinguishable from magic. Cast your mind back to the 60s and see what we got right now. See, back when, I, when we did the Voyager project, if you want to make a phone call, there was a wire that went to the wall. <laughs> no internet. No GPS, for God's sake. Slide rules. Slide rules. And if somebody would have come up and says all the things you were gonna that we would have, you would think about that that's that's FM and that's fine magic. Okay? But my favorite one that defines the whole thing, and this is really important, is third law, and he says that when a noted, respected, revered scientist stands up and declares that something's possible. He's probably right. But if the same respected scientist stands up and says that something is impossible, he's almost certainly wrong. Okay, 
Now, let's put that. And, and I like to put things in historical perspective. And this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, and let's say there's a guy named Albert, you know, receding hairline and curly hair. and uh, Einstein, I think, it, I think his name was Albert Einstein. Anyway, he fits this mold perfectly. And he stands up and he says, it is impossible to exceed the speed of light. And what did Arthur C. Clarke said? Bullshit. If he says it's impossible, he's almost certainly wrong. It is wrong. And that freaks out a lot of them. Because there's a, there's a certain arrogance to certitude. Well, he says, no. The faster you go, the heavier you get. And the faster you go, the shorter you get. And at the speed of light, you get so short you disappear, your clock stops. And if there's anything more absurd in my mind, that's got to be that. I mean, what? And then I cast my mind back in a historical perspective. And what do they say historically? Hey, they said the same thing about the speed of sound when I was a little kid. You know, shockwaves build up the energy and would destroy the vehicle. They said the same thing. Now, when I go and talk to the young kids, I want to put them in perspective about Arthur C. Clarke and about uh, limitations. And I tell them, if you see somebody that, that has a limitation, never look at it as something you abide by. Never abide by it. Think of it as a target of opportunity for greatness because they're probably wrong. And then Chuck Yeager went out one day and, and proved them wrong. And all of a sudden it changed aviation forever. So the challenge that you and your brother came up with was to fly around the world in a craft that, uh, without stopping, without refueling. Okay, let's put it in perspective, a historical perspective. And it's about, the, the first thing mom says, is you have to have an exciting, almost unachievable goal. You have to have a goal. And then how do you accomplish that goal? You do it through manage the motivation, right? Okay, when Bert came up, and anyway, my girlfriend, Jean, at that time, and Bert had lunch, and I was trying to talk him into doing aerobatic airplane. I like doing aerobatics, and that's really cool. I thought maybe that was gonna be my next life thing. But then he says, he says, I've been thinking about it, and I think it's possible with a new material called carbon fiber, that it's now for the first time possible to build an airplane that can fly transglobal, unrefueled. What? And it says, Bert, the absolute distance record by any airplane ever to fly in the absolute category is a B-52. It flew from Cadena, Okinawa to Madrid, Spain. And it flew 12 and a half thousand miles. And it is recognized by the FAI as an absolute distance record, unrefueled distance record. And that's roughly half that's half around the world. Twelve and a half thousand miles is halfway around the world. And it says, Bert, we built home-built airplanes in a crummy little desert town with not two nickels to rub together. We're going to take on the B-52? He says, yeah. Okay, all of a sudden that permeated into my mind. And I thought, that even as a little kid, I wanted to do something to be recognized as having done it as a pilot. And I thought that goal was going to be accomplished in my combat time. Because when this whole thing was over, I retired, uh, uh, you know, Purple Heart and a, and a Silver Star and a bunch of air, DFCs and air metal. And I accomplished all that. I did it. I went to combat and I performed. I did a damn good job. I volunteered for two duties, for two tours at the high risk thing. Did all that. Really proud. Okay, talk about self esteem. Hey. <laughs> Now I'm a shut-out fighter pilot, and I did all that, and I set records doing it. Talk about self-esteem. <laughs> yeah, maybe that wasn't all that good for other people around me, my wife would say. But it took, it took a handful of minutes to realize, to permeate in me the significance of that. The first ever unrefueled flight around the world. Holy bananas. That can be done. That's maybe the last milestone, the last major milestone in atmospheric flight. And this guy sitting over here, my younger snot-nosed brother, he thinks that he can design an airplane capable. And I thought, Bert, if you think you can design the son of a gun, 
Gene and I will fly it around the world. Thanks to Elaine McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever. <laughs>